The Kern Institute Podcast Network. I'm one of the podcast hosts for the Medical Medical Education Matters for the Kern Institute. And I have the privilege today to have uh, the director, uh, Adina Kallet, who is going to um, have a discussion with me about uh, some of the initiatives, as well as some of the background regarding the Kern Institute. Uh, thank you. Dr. Khaled for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I love to talk about the Kern Institute. So um, just to get us started with this uh, discussion, tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to take this job at the Kern Institute back, I believe, in 2019. Yeah, that's right. So I arrived in Milwaukee in September of 2019. Um, After spending 30 30 plus years uh, at the at New York University School of Medicine, where I I arrived as as an intern, and then spent the rest of my the the bulk of my career there. Um, And just very briefly about myself, I always loved teaching and learning um, from as early as I can remember. I grew up in New York City. Um, I went to public schools in New York City. I always made choices in my own educational journey to do the the, the off the beaten trail educational experience. So I often, I very more often than most people was in the first cohort of students in a new program. Um, and right after high school, I went into a six-year BSMD program, which was uh, at the time called the Sophie Davis School of Medicine. Um, it actually wasn't a school of medicine, Sophie Davis program, which um, prepared urban students, many from underprivileged backgrounds, to serve as primary care physicians for underserved communities in the state of New York. Um and that was uh, that was in 1978. <laughs> that was a long time ago, and that put me on a path um, to become a physician. But it, it put me on an educationally innovative path. So again, it wasn't the standard pathway. I was never the standard student. I went from there into a. I was in the first cohort of primary care residents at NYU Bellevue uh, Hospital. Um, I served my mission for, I, I actually had a requirement to serve as a primary care doctor for underserved communities in, uh, at Gouverneur Hospital on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which served a very diverse um, underserved community. I was a primary care doctor there for 10 years. And as part of my time there, um, I worked to launch training programs for NYU medical students and residents in community-based programming. So we had, we launched a new clinical clerkship, an ambulatory care clerkship. We launched, we had residents come to a community-based setting to practice and learn medicine. Um, So these were all kind of innovative things at the time, um, which gave me a real taste for um, 
what is possible in medicine um, from the point of view of education that could have real impact on patients. I mean, on, on it could, could have real impact on the public's health. And uh, I spent my career, I have a master's, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a master's in public health. I'm an, in epidemiology and biostats. I'm a, I'm a quant <laughs> by training. Um, and it got me really, really interested in combining health services research with what was then a, a nascent field of health professions education. So there was no path in health professions education when I was coming up. So I created my own path and did a, spent most of my career doing curriculum innovation and medical education research while practicing and teaching. And so uh, by the time the, I, my, I opened my email and saw the announcement for the Kern Institute for the Transformation of Medical Education at the Medical College of Wisconsin, I was a tenured professor of medicine at NYU. I, had, I was not looking for a job. Um, I thought I would live out my career in that, doing that work. Um, but more than one other person sent me the announcement. <laughs> and so I called the recruiter and she convinced me to come interview. And <clears throat> I had never been in Milwaukee until the day I came for that interview. And it, um, it really inspired me to think that uh, MCW was ready to do something so transformative with such good resources from the Kern Family Foundation. Um, I felt like it was the perfect role for me. Um, I felt like I could imagine it. I can imagine what could be done. And um, luckily for me, they agreed. Um, and uh, was not my plan to move. Uh, um, you know, I'm a New York City born and bred. Um, I could have stayed there my whole life. My whole family is there. Um, but I felt like this was um, an opportunity to to do something that only comes up once in a lifetime. And I was just lucky to to have the opportunity. Um, so wow. <laughs> wow. I don't even know where to start. You know, you were first in a first, you know, in a cohort for clinical care. You were first in innovation. You were first, um, uh, I suspect, in executive women leadership in many ways. So it's a kudos to you, to your career, to your perseverance to get where you are today. I am intrigued by your um, decision to incorporate yet another page in your life with this transition as the director for the Kern Institute in Milwaukee. And, you know, I'm, I'm familiar too with this. You know, I was a clinician in internal medicine and pediatrics, changed careers to become a pediatric anesthesiologist. I'm now going to be changing institutions for, um, again, part of it, because we are passionate, I think, in education, in teaching and learning. And, um, uh, promoting this impact that we think is important in, um, in, in transformation of medical education. So that's how I will put that. Um, interestingly enough, um, I am curious to hear from you. Um, one of the pieces that you bring up in the 
uh, Kern Institute is the transformational times. And that's one of the um, pieces that provide a face to the Kern Institute and disseminate some of the important projects that the Kern Institute is involved with. I love your pieces. I'm curious about where do you get your ideas? And even more importantly, you're, I'm, I'm amazed by the way you link them in the projects and in education and in learning and in clinical. Tell us a little bit about that. So that surprises me as much as it surprises, <laughs> hopefully in um, delights other people. So I, until March of 2020, when we as an institute had to, we were packing up the office and sending people to shelter at home, thinking it would just be a few weeks. Um, the current institute had a quarterly newsletter. And we realized in that moment that if we were to scatter for a few weeks, that we would need some way to communicate regularly and keep people tied in. And so we decided to go to a weekly newsletter. So that's a story that we've told a few times. Um, Bruce Campbell, Wendy Peltier, Kathleen Fletcher, myself, we started meeting once a week and just we started putting out a journal, you know, basically putting dropping a newsletter once a week. In that process, I realized that I had an opportunity, which I needed, it was very much for self-serving, to articulate what the Kern Institute was about. Uh, when I when I joined, uh, it was two and a half to three years into the Kern Institute, there was still a, a perspective that we were a black box, <laughs> that people didn't understand what was going on in the Kern Institute. And I, I mean, even people within the Institute didn't fully understand, certainly our, our MCW community and then well beyond the MCW community. So this, we needed, a, we needed the, the, the transformational time served a number of purposes. And I realized my job as a leader was to, as simply as possible, communicate a vision for what it means to transform medical education for us. There are many, many people around the world doing this kind of work, as you, as you have, were, as you said. But what, what were we doing at the Kurt Institute that was unique? And so, uh, just the discipline of having to write a thousand words every week. And but you could go back and read my first few; they weren't all that inspiring. But the, but you know, it, it, it was a really clarifying thing for all of us. So I would write a first draft. Bruce would, uh, Dr. Campbell would edit it. Um, others would read it and get back to me. And but we had to do it under time pressure, and so we had to do it rapidly. And I developed a, just a, a, a habit in my own mind of telling my own stories because I because again the things that that I we got the most feedback about were when I told a personal story and so I got into that habit where you know what how what could I learn from my own life's journey or from the people who impl influenced me and the ideas that influenced me and then always bring it back to what we were doing what we meant by transformation and Again, I just wrote my 96th director's corner. I had no intention of doing that kind of work coming into it, but the discipline and the need, the urgent need to kind of articulate it, I think got us into a habit of, and <clears throat> while I, 
I love the creativity of it. I do, do enjoy that. I am a risk taker educationally. I like these ideas. <clears throat> it was the rea- the the it was the idea that I was communicating to our whole community that really was motivating. So I don't know where all the ideas come from. I have to tell you, um, I have a I have a, a, a hundred page document of just ideas, and I sometimes I go back to that if I need one. But mostly it's staying in the moment. You know, what's what's relevant this week? What's in the newspaper this week? What's uh, What are we doing in the current institute that people need to hear about? And that's what kind of gets me going. And then and then I have to say, it's not just me. <laughs> that um, uh, Bruce Campbell has been a partner through this whole thing. Uh, uh, Kathleen Fletcher, Wendy Peltier, everybody's, we're always brainstorming together. I'm the one who, puts my name on it and writes it every week, but um, it's the work of the members of the Institute that I'm trying to lift. Again, wow is, it's just so much fun to read the interweaving, the interlinking of some of the personal stories. We all know that what sticks in medical education, in education in general, is not a lecture, is that personal touch that a teacher has provided to us that linked it with their stories, with their life events that reminded us today of what Um, they had gone through or something that is linked to education and allows us to remember it. And I, you know, I go back to Cyprus, you know, frequently enough that I visit my three teachers from high school because of that, because of those links to their life stories that allowed me to remember some of the pieces in chemistry and math and English that I, you know, cherish to today. Uh, you talked about great ideas, wonderful people occurring, and I know it's been about four years now. Um, any uh, lessons learned that perhaps during those four years that maybe you can share with us and the broader audience? Yeah, so I, you know, there's so many lessons learned. Uh, it's not, wouldn't surprise anybody listening to this that COVID disruptive events like a global pandemic, uh, like a social justice movement, like the sort of what's going on around us politically, what's going on around us um, with respect to health challenges and disparities are all opportunities. But I think what's what I I think the take home message for me is we are we are challenged to be very adaptable to sudden changes in the environment, in in resources, in in um, just again, COVID's the perfect example. So COVID tossed us an opportunity to launch the transformational times and get very clear about what we were doing. As an example, to uh, transform the way we educate, we deliver education. That's not a surprise to anybody. Uh, we've all had to go remote. You know, we've had to think about that. It's forced us to do, um, to really think about the use of the the fully embracing the new technologies while still holding on to core values 
that's kind of, that's been the big challenge. So it doesn't, doesn't worry me that we're using technology to deliver education. That's a 50 year old, a hundred years old, actually. There's always new technologies that move education into a new realm. But what's really interesting to me is how we hold on to core basic principles as we transform the platforms that we use. Our students are changing, we're changing, but what it means to be a physician hasn't changed for millennia in many in many ways, um, in some core ways. And so that's that's really important. So adaptability, clarity about core values is very important. Um, we've learned in the Kern Institute to be very humble, uh, which, uh, for mo for most of the members of our institute is actually temperamentally relatively easy to do. I think we have a we have a lovely, wonderful group of people who are very expert. But needing, you know, in all in in all of this noise with the polarities, wanting to transform things, you're upsetting the status quo. And in order to do that, you have to be able to listen very carefully. You have to be very respectful. Um, you have to be willing to change your mind. <laughs> Um, I think that's, those are challenges that I think I was not fully aware were going to be important. And we've learned that the hard way sometimes. Um, so adaptability, flexibility, humility um, have been really, really important. Um, we have some very big problems to solve. We cannot do this ourselves. Uh, it, it requires uh, institutional culture change. It requires institutions at all levels, like big, big picture institutions. And we want to be part of that. We want to be good citizens of that. Um, so I think those are the things that just, it, it's not so much that they were new ideas, but they were became very clearly critical in these last, it's been three and a half years going on four. And I've learned so much uh, um, about the need for, as a leader, to be a really good listener and to really be humble, but not to the point where you don't share your view and your vision. And I think that's kind of gets back to the director's corners, right? Like the director's corners give me an opportunity to sit with myself and think, what's the vision? Let's, let's write about it briefly and then let's put it out there and see what people think. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing what, a calamity of immense proportions makes humans do. Yes. He, as you said, provides maybe clarity about life-work balance, provides clarity about where are we today and where do we want to go tomorrow, provides the adaptability pieces and resources that you didn't think you have, you create, and resources that you had, but they were underutilized, you now bring them to the forefront. So, you know, the video recording or the this video virtual uh, piece has been there for many, many, many years. It's just a matter of now it suddenly became in the forefront because of necessity. And I think that's an important piece. You you brought up one piece that I thought was interesting. You brought the disparities, the perhaps part of the gender equity. Um, and I am curious, um, you're uh, one of the senior leaders, you're in executive leadership, you're a woman. Um, so 
a lot of women experience and even through COVID experience this imposter syndrome. And I'm curious if you felt that you struggled with that at times, or perhaps is there any coaching pieces from you that others could learn from? Yes, I could talk about this endlessly. Um, um, I will say, so just from the point of view of being a woman in medicine and and being um, and having aspirations, you know, having be aspiring to make changes and and to lead changes. Um, I've always had to kind of struggle with, you know, over over decades with various kinds of barriers to that. I would say um, I was the first, first as an example. I was uh, interestingly the first clinician educator at my former institution to achieve promotion with tenure on a clinician educator track. At the time, that was a new thing. I know MCW similarly. Most medical schools in the United States have have now promotion opportunities tracks for people who are not biomedical scientists. Um, and that was new at the time. And so interestingly, it wasn't so much that I was a woman, but that I had a career path that was non-traditional. And so I had the opportunity of a few things. One is I had champions. I had um, I had senior people, all white men, because that's those were the people uh, who believed in me enough um, based on the quality of my work and my commitment and my presence, my willing to my willingness to engage to to advocate for me. They didn't make it easier, but they encouraged me to believe I could go I could go on that path. When when the senior associate dean I first spoke to about this, he had a problem to solve. He had just created this new path. He needed to demonstrate somebody could actually successfully be promoted on that path. So I stepped into his office, just the timing was good. And, and I said, and he asked me, have you ever considered, you know, going up for tenure? And I looked at him, I said, I didn't think that was possible. Everybody had always told me this is not, it's not, you know, I was, didn't have, that wasn't part of my worldview because nobody had ever said it was possible. So having a mentor like him say, not only is it possible, but I want you to be, you know, the first gave me two opportunities. One is it, it demonstrates to me how important it is to, to mentor others into possibilities that they otherwise hadn't imagined. And the other was to be the first. When you're the first, you can do it not for self-aggrandizement. You know, you know that a lot of women are particularly um, sensitized to self-promotion, right? Men are raised in our society to have a healthy sense of that it's important to promote yourself from time to time. Women are raised not to. <laughs> so for me, doing it for others was more important than doing it for myself. So he said, you could be the first and, you know, and therefore it would, it would blaze a trail for others. And I spent many years of my career, once I did it the first time, once I was successful, turning around and helping others up. And that for me was, was very um, inspiring because I could do, I my own sense of uh, what, what people call imposter syndrome now was not the language we use then, but that my own sense that I wasn't 
I wasn't, I didn't look like the people, you know, that, that was not my path got transformed into you're blazing a new path. And not only that, but you're helping others do that. So my own humility worked for me, you know, the, the imposter syndrome, I thought, okay, well, I felt like an imposter, but if, if my Dean thinks this is possible, then let's go for it. So I've really internalized that model. I like to use that model. I like to explore what people really are interested in doing and encourage them to seek formal things like promotion, like leadership positions. A lot of the women I talk to, and, and increasingly men as well, don't see themselves there because it's they don't think it'll be a happy or friendly place for them. They, they think if they take a leadership position, they're going to be overwhelmed and they're not going to be able to balance their lives. And the secret is that's not true. The secret is if you take a leadership position, you're not more overwhelmed than you are now. You might you might have to learn new skills. You might have to learn to delegate. You might learn how, how to lead others, but it's not necessarily going to undo you. And so I learned that as well. So I, I think I came up during a time of particularly, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I was uh, not, I didn't do this on my own. I didn't get here on my own. Actually, I have to tell you that joining MCW, I'm very impressed with all the work that's been done to, to clear pathways to leadership for women. I think we're, the work's not done yet, but it's, uh, but there's the environment is, is, I find it a, a very positive place to be an executive woman, actually, uh, in leadership. There's lots of, I'm not alone the way I was in my past, you know, 20 years ago, I was alone. I was the only one. I was always the only tenured woman professor in my division, which meant I was doing a lot of, there was a minority tax. You know, I was doing a lot of helping others. That's no longer true. Um, there's lots of great women coming up. Uh, I think we have other work to do. Uh, gender equity has taught us some things about how to do this for equity across many, many diversities. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly passionate about the uh, gender equity piece. I'm passionate about the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. I'm an immigrant myself, so I face that, almost that imposter syndrome in it you know, a different aspect of am I good in um, getting there, uh, part of it, because you're unsure of your skill set and whether you will be overwhelmed in an executive leadership position. Certainly what I heard from you is encouragement and exploration to seek this formal um, titles or tangible things that allow for more impact, perhaps, and uh, acknowledging your value. And um, certainly the allies, the sponsors and mentors along the way are the ones that uh, pave our paths in order to get there. And I, I, I can't uh, speak enough uh, for my own mentors and sponsors in order to be where I am today. So uh, I applaud your work and um, painting the canvas to add 
more color and more um, uh, opportunities for others. So thank you for that. Um, we're coming to an end and I want to uh, use this maybe another five minutes or so to ask you, I know we're heading into this second gift of funding for the Kern Institute and um, perhaps you can share some excitement of um, the this next part for you. I really value this opportunity to say that we are uh, very grateful to the Kern Family Foundation for a second very generous gift because five years is not enough time to accomplish what was our mission, which is to transform medical education to better align with the needs of the public, right? On the basis of character and caring and what we're calling excellence as opposed to competence. We're kind of moving to talk about not a floor of competence, but a ceiling of excellence. We want to do that. And we've always, from the beginning, before I arrived, been doing that by working locally, right? Cultivating locally, learning generalizable lessons from that cultivation and disseminating that uh, to our larger community um, so that MCW becomes an exemplar of what is possible. Um, what I'm really excited about um, is most of our effort for the next year and a half to two years is going to be focused on the new MCW fusion curriculum, which was launched by Dean Bill Houston uh, in 2019 through a series of reimagining retreats and has been, interestingly enough, and I think in many ways accelerated because of COVID, we've been able to get further along because we've been forced to adapt and change. So adaption and change has become more of our everyday. So I'm excited about uh, what I always say, this is a guesstimate, but about 80% of our resources within the Kern Institute are focused in supporting and lifting the work of academic affairs of our Dean's office to, to design and implement a cutting edge curriculum for the next era at MCW. And so I'm excited about that. In addition to that, and you know, when I say 80%, I mean faculty development, innovation, all the work that we're doing in data science, the philosophies of medical education transformation, our human-centered design lab, um, much of their effort is focused on some different aspects of the new curriculum because it's a it's a giant lift for a medical school of our size. Um, we are also going to do a few signature programs. We're going to launch a Kern an MCW Kern Institute Press. So what we want to do, and partly this is on the back of our trial balloons, like our, our transformational times has been so successful. We've been able to publish two books of, of selections from the transformational times, voices from the whole community about what it means to transform medical education, that we believe that there's a there's a, a, a lane for us in, in curating and publishing long form descriptions of what you need to do to transform medical education. And that will be thought, you know, long form thought pieces, books. It might be manuals and how-tos on how to, how to do certain kinds of curricular work um, and probably proceedings from, from conferences and meetings. Those will be the three categories. 
Um, and we're excited about that. It'll be a small press. It'll be a university press. Uh, but we're, we think there's, there is no such thing in medical education. We think we can become the go-to publishers for innovative medical ed education. The, the other thing we are hoping to lift is a health equity scholars program where we solve a number of, per, of, of persistent dilemmas we have in medical education by, by creating a program that really um, recruits students who wanna do health equity work from communities that traditionally have been underrepresented in the health professions workforce and then surround that group of students with the core curriculum of medical school with, su with support to, to thrive becoming physicians, but also with higher expectations to do community oriented work, to engage with health, health equity issues and um, to support them in the resilience they will need to do that kind of work. Cause it's not, that's not easy work. Um, we're hoping to launch that, that's in process. And then the last big program we propose to the to the foundation is to launch a, a national capacity enhancing program. And what we are calling a national, right now what we're calling a national character in medical education lab, where we might run, build and run programs for mostly for faculty and staff who want to do this kind of transformative work um, as a career. So it might include certification programs, master's program, pre and postdoc opportunities. We're not, that's a that's a idea in progress right now, but um, we're hoping to take our lived experience over the last, which what'll be the first five years of the gift into the second five years and, um, create durable, sustainable programs. So MCW will be transformed uh, and we'll be, a, we'll be good citizens of that. We'll be disseminating in meaningful ways and then we'll be doing some capacity building so that that, dis, that transformative, what we've learned about what it means to transform medical education will be sustained. Um, and that's, those are the things I'm excited about now. So we're gonna stay the course. We're gonna keep doing what we're doing. Um, we're going to be very good citizens of the institution within which we th live and thrive, but we're also going to disseminate um, as much as we can to engage with others. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So I hear explore locally, enrich, and disseminate um, globally. And I hear curriculum, I hear the university press, health equity scholars with the communities and disparities and underrepresented in medicine. I hear this national capacity enhancing character. And um, I certainly, you know, I throw a pitch since I am the co-director of the collaboratories in the research part as well for medical education, again, going into our second cohort. Lots of projects, lots of innovative ideas, lots of thoughts. Um, I am also grateful for the current foundation and the family providing that support for a second time. And if there are um, maybe one or two key takeaways 
for our audience before we close off. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, here you want my director's corner like thinking about this. Um, I uh, I want to say that the Kern Family Foundation um, has put wind in our sails, as they say. That's their that's their metaphor, and I think that's exactly right. Like they they have invested in us because they believe in us. They know what we do is in, important work, and it's up to us to define what that is and and to do it uh, to do to work toward it. Right. So I I would want to just say the takeaway for me is when I joined the words of character and caring felt old fashioned to me. It felt like it's what's cutting edge about that. And what I've learned uh, in doing this work is that these are our fundamental principles. Our profession has always been about character and caring from the very beginning. We may not have had the technology or the knowledge or whatever, but, but that those are fundamentals and we need to keep our eye on that particular ball because the winds of change have, I think, distracted us as a profession from really centering on the fact that we are, we, we're, we're, it, this is a moral profession. We are involved with people at their most vulnerable People depend on us. The health of the public, to some extent, depends on us. And that feels very clarifying to me. So I want to say that. That's a takeaway for me. Um, there are a lot of challenges to that. Um, we need to make sure that the people we educate... I have two I have two quilts on my wall. I just want to... Maybe I'll leave you with this. One quilt uh, that I made at some point a long time ago says, never forget we are educating physicians. Like, just never forget that. If you can keep that in mind, it'll help you make decisions. The other one that I just made uh, says, ruin your career. And maybe that takes us full circle back to the beginning. Like, when you think you've got it all figured out, ruin your career. Do something, take a risk, do something different. Because if you think you have it figured out, chances are you don't. And uh, if you have an opportunity to do something like I had the opportunity, be brave, uh, you know, step maybe step off the cliff, make some plans, make sure that your people you your people, your people you love are are good. Uh, make sure you're good. but don't don't be held back by uh, a sense that change is impossible. I think, so I, again, I just made that quilt because I was thinking that's, that's what I did. Like I, I had a tenured professorship in another place, uh, you know, a top tiered medical school, top, you know, whatever they like, uh, you know, our, my, my alma mater likes to think of themselves as, you know, among the best of the best. I did that. Um, so I wanted to ruin my career to see what was possible. And it's been, it's been, it's made all the difference to quote a famous poet. That's that's a great takeaway messages. So greatly appreciate that. And I would say it, it, it's fun to consider also the urgency sometimes. Our iceberg is melting by quarter. And I think it's also fun to consider that urgency that perhaps COVID has put in for us to allow us to consider some of the opportunities and the challenges that we still have. And um, change 
it can be challenging, but it is important for innovation. So um, again, thank you, Dr. Khaled, for joining me today. This was a, a fun discussion, conversation, and um, I and the Kern Institute appreciates the work that you have done for the Medical College of Wisconsin. Yep, that we all have done. Thank you, Dr. Olinas. <laughs>